Staging Sound, a podcast reflecting on theatre music, sound design, sonic practices and experiences. Welcome to another episode of Staging Sound. This is the second edition of our guest slot, uh, if we want to call it that, from the Schall und Rausch Festival in Berlin, which happened in February 2023, uh, showing brand new music theatre and being hosted by the Komische Oper Berlin. Today's panel was uh, a conversation about pop and experiment. It is hosted by Julia Jorda, the dramaturg of the festival, and uh, I'm sure you will enjoy the episode, and she herself will introduce the panel more fully and introduce her guests. So um, I'm very happy to welcome you. I would like to uh, introduce my guests on the panel. Bronwyn Lays uh, is a visual artist who has collaborated with uh, William Kentridge on founding and establishing the Center for the Less Good Idea in Johannesburg in South Africa. And uh, for Bronwyn, for you who currently uh, works between Austria and South Africa, her artistic uh, practice is concerned with the relationship between art and other fields such as physics, literature, philosophy, museum practice and uh, education. So site specificity uh, as well as responsiveness and performativity are central to her practice as well as a balance between an isolated introspective studio process and a collaborative communal process. And then right here is Nklankla Mahlangu, a vocalist, composer, theater maker, a dancer and educator uh, with a career that spans more than 20 years uh, of professional performance and also administration in the realms of theater and dance. Mahlangu's work has been seen all over Africa, Asia, North America, South America and uh, Europe uh, and of course Berlin now. Yesterday was um, the premiere for us, the premiere um, of African Exodus and before that the Surplus Circus, which we will be talking a little bit more. But also um, through his work, Mahlangu excavates personal and communal histories while also utilizing art and performance as tools for healing. Mahlangu has been a frequent collaborator at the Center for the Less Good Idea, uh, which you joined in uh, 2017 in the debut season. Um, and ever since then, he has conceptualized, directed and performed in yeah, numerous, ex uh, numerous experimental and collaborative works at the center. And on my side is Miriam Schaub. Uh, she's a philosopher and a journalist who studied philosophy, politics, psychology in Münster, Munich, Paris and Berlin and also screenwriting in LA as I found out. Since 2017, a professor of philosophy at the Kunsthochschule Burg Giebichenstein in Halle an der Saale, and before a professor uh, at Hamburg University of Applied Sciences. And Schaub's research interests include cultural and media uh, philosophy, especially film and cinema, aesthetics and art philosophy. She's also a co-founder of the Artistic and Scientific Graduate School Performing Citizenship, and she's currently working on a monograph called Performing Radicalness, an untold history of pop culture. So thank you for being here. 
I would like to start this panel pop-in experiment with a little experiment with everybody and listen to a little bit of music. And I'm very interested to know if you all think, is this pop cultural and is this experimental? And I will play and ask you, is this pop cultural? And maybe you can um, put your hand up if you think so. I leave it in the background. Who thinks this is pop culture? Who thinks this is pop? <laughs> And who thinks this is experimental? One person, two people, yeah, a few people, yeah, great. So this was, of course, Good Vibrations by the Beach Boys which, uh, when it came out, um, was coined one of the most experimental pop works uh, that actually existed because they um, experimented with harmony, with riffs, with instrumentation. And, um, yeah, they kind of made the movement of um, uh, progressive rock and, and psychedelic rock uh, happen. I'll play something else and ask you the same questions. I don't want to put anybody on the spot and ask what this is, but do you think this is pop culture? Interesting, interesting. Do you think this is experimental? Okay. Okay, very interesting. So this was Heroes by David Bowie. Uh, by the way, um, an album he wrote uh, for Neukölln, in Neukölln, and there is a track on it, wrongly written Neukölln with one L. <laughs> um, yeah, and this was, and uh, some people consider it very experimental in the way that he uses instruments and uses harmonies, and uh, in the way as well as he constructs texts, with, which was very, very um, interesting, in the cut-up method. I will play a third and last song and ask you again my questions. Who thinks this is pop culture? <laughs> And who thinks this is experimental? Thank you very much for participating. Um, so this was uh, Toreador from Carmen by Georges Bizet, an opera uh, from the 1875. And uh, this opera, why did I play especially this opera, um, is the most played opera in all opera houses all over Europe and, uh, and wherever there's an opera house, I think this opera is played. And it gets cited in um, TV series such as Tom and Jerry, uh, Tom and Jerry go to the opera, Carmen get it, and they um, play this opera. Of course, Jerry finishes conducting it. So... Well, uh, this was a little game to get to know these two uh, concepts of pop culture and, and experimentalism exp or experiment. 
Um, our program at the Shalon Rausch Festival itself, I think, is very inspired by pop culture and um, by its aesthetics, by its music, by its topics, um, ranging from trance, uh, 12-hour performance at the Kindle, um, which is very inspired by club culture, um, to Der Diskrete Scham der Reduktion, which had its premiere last weekend and uh, is yeah, performed and directed by um, the punk legend Schorsch Cameroon from the band German band, Goldene Zitronen. And of course, the gig theaters that happened also last weekend with Berlin pop musicians. I would like to get to know pop culture. What does it mean? And Miriam Schaub, since you thankfully research pop culture, I would love to ask you, what is pop culture? Well, pop culture is uh, the Regis Digest for music. It is what everybody likes, what is easy to like, what gives permission to be liked, which wants to be liked, which wants to be bought to be liked, what is to be found everywhere, on the supermarket shelf as well as uh, on your private coffee table. So it is a ubiquity of a culture in all its ways that everybody feels very easy to agree on and where there seems no need to have any discussion about bad or good taste. It is just somebody everybody can agree on and therefore it has it is like a glue for every culture. And this kind of glue is important. It's kind of cultural commons, I would call always pop cultures to at any time and at any cost. We kind of looked into this um, concept of pop culture, finding out it's as you say, it's to be liked, it's direct, it's, um, it's something that creates social groups. Um, and you study specifically radicality in uh, pop culture. How did that come about? How did you find an interest in, in specifically this? Well, that's a kind of eccentric move because everything what I've said is not radical at all. So the way I describe pop culture seems to be the very opposite of radicalness, the opposite of experiment the opposite of avant-garde, the opposite of everything. I was also startled by this. And for me, uh, I have to say, the modern pop culture becomes radical with a person. It's a philosopher you might have heard of. He died in 1832 in London. He's not buried. You can still see him. And he made his body be transformed into an auto-icon. This is how Jeremy Bentham wanted to be thought of, and not because he thought himself to be popular. He was also very unpopular at his time. <laughs> very, very unpopular. His philosophy was extremely unpopular. And um, he was designing his own corpse as a kind of spaceship to be sent into, into the future, to be seen by us now, and also as a means to look into his texts. And he wrote... A testament, a last will about this his corpse called the auto icon, and he also wrote um, like a prescription how to use it, and I think this is where performative art starts. It's a text about eleven ways of using his dead body, and very, very, very curious ways of using it. And th at that moment, I thought, wow, this is at the same time radical and making a move into modern culture, into our culture. How, how does it come that a radical philosopher 
in the dying at the beginning of the 19th century has something to say for our art, our conceptual art, our performative arts now? How does it come? Because he didn't see himself as art at all. It was not at all an art category where he was thought of. Um, yeah, and that was the, the striking idea that I thought we must, as a, or as a philosopher, it seems to make sense to have a broader idea of popular culture. And the moment where it becomes radical is precisely the moment where the use of one's own body and life and soul and everything becomes ubiquitous and becomes open to your use. And the use can also be a misuse of oneself. It can be a use in any possible way. And that's, I think, the moment where we have a kind of collusion. Uh, and co as you know, collusions are always violent. And things collude that are not alike, things that, have, that are opposites of each other, not the direct opposites, but which have a tension. So this is like, I think in, 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 in 1832, there was that particular moment where radicalness and a radical thought of conceptualizing one's own future collided with an idea to, with an idea that is nowadays a signature trait of popular culture that you can transform anything into anything by making an unorthodox, queer, unexpected, surprising use. This idea of transforming a singular idea into a ubiquitous use, that is the moment where radicalness collides with pop culture and gives the first idea what we are heading for. And speaking about the use of pop culture in in a talk, you said uh, also, or talking with me, you said also that pop culture is uh, quite um, concerned with capitalism and with uh, with offering itself up to a, to a mass. Um, would you still say that? Do you think pop culture is inherently that as well, or is the radical a necessity for a pop culture to um, even have a, a, a more transcendent future? I would like to say yes, but I'm reluctant. <laughs> I would wish it could become more transcendent. It would be nice to have more transcendency in it. But yes, I think what is what is startling uh, in capitalism is its ability to 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 consume its opposites, to integrate its opposites, to be to be permissive to its opposites, to incorporate also the eject and queer and unorthodox and this kind of capacity to incorporate all these things that do not fit in well and make them fitting is disturbing, but it's also a great quality. And I think this is the common trait that pop culture shares with the capitalism we are in. And this is why they too fuel each other It makes us uncomfortable. It, I think it's really difficult to be avant-garde right now. It's really, really difficult. And uh, this difficulty we have to accept. I'm very interested, Bronwyn and, and in Klankla, to know how pop culture um, impacts or even is it a part um, of your work because thinking about pop culture for our context here at the festival, we found out as well that pop culture is 
somehow global in some aspects, but there is, of course, locally sort of pop culture. I'm from Spain, so my pop culture might not be yours. Um, and also that pop culture is... Uh, direct, as I said, and uh, can make a community, can bring people together through, through its affirmativeness that it has. So I'm very interested to know, um, because we saw African Exodus yesterday, and um, it was conceived as a musical, as, as, as uh, I now know, and so I'm very interested to know, does pop culture impact uh, your work? Maybe I'll start with, with Nklankla. I, I would like to know. The subject of pop culture it's it's a very difficult one for me for various reasons one for the fact that i grew up without a enough repertoire of what pop culture is and when you go to school and the children are talking about the series they've been watching and you know nothing about it because there's no tv at home and when the children are playing a game, singing a song from the radio, and you don't know that song because you don't have a radio, and you only know when, when the radio plays, it's when Granny is listening to the news. And the news I'm hearing, it's, the country is in a state of emergency during the regime of P.W. Bother. And... And so the pop culture that is consumed by the community, especially in the music, I'm not hearing it. I'm hearing it incidentally. Like, they are, you know, I've been sent to buy bread at the shop and I pass a tavern and there's a song playing and everybody's dancing, but I know that I need to come back, you know. And the music I'm exposed to, it's the music of the struggle songs with the bricks in the hand and throwing at the, at the Kasbah and people running away from the police. Um, and, and in my life, I've been lucky enough to meet a group of 15 men who were my age who had no idea who Michael Jackson was. And they were the most amazing singers I've ever come across. I've worked with them for about seven years. And even that seven years, they still didn't know and didn't care who Michael Jackson was. So the subject of pop culture is very complex, personally. For me, it's a very personal thing. You know, because of the age of producing knowledge, we are at the state where we need to coin and label the things we do. And there are a lot of things that I, as an artist, have been doing and without labeling them, without even thinking, okay, F, okay, I'm going to use pop music so that this is pop like this or pop like that. As an artist, I create from the body and the knowledge and memory and... Even the performance, those who came yesterday and those who will come today, the music and the aesthetics, they are really based on what is in the memory of the people we are working with. And, and then the labeling of it is, for me, is really, really secondary. When I made my first work as an independent artist, leaving the comfort of the dance company and going into the wild, 
uh, one of the things that I realized in that project was that, and because, uh, you know, a director whom I invited to come and work with me in the work, he, said, he asked me about the songs, I, my favorite songs from, I, I used to sing and hear as a child. And I've had more gunshots as a child than songs. As a child, I knew the, the caliber of the gun by its sound. And then I also realized that I started, my music became very rhythmic. Gang, 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 gang. So I'm always hearing that, and I'm thinking it's a drum, but what sits in my memory, is it a drum or not, I don't know. When an AK-47 shoots, it sounds like this. It's got this prestige sound where there's no echo. It shoots, and there's nothing. it's quiet, like nothing happened. And then... And then you have an R5 rifle. We knew that the police and the soldiers use the R5. It has a dual sound that goes, kaku, 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 And there's a music that the AK-47 and the R5 rifle do together. And then I became interested in beatboxing. I don't know what attracted me to it. I've never been to a hip-hop concert. I, I don't like hip-hop, but I'm interested in beatboxing. Then I would pull beatboxer and mix the beatboxer with the choirs and create the harmony. And, and yeah, um, so it, the, the, the subject of pop culture is very complex for me. Thank you. Thank you, Nklenkla, for that. Bronwyn, because we also talked a little bit about this uh, topic regarding the Center for the Less Good Idea and um, not only pop culture but the popular, and I was wondering what was um, the relationship or the even the concept of popular, um, which um, importance does it have for you and And especially, sorry for asking you two questions in one, uh, I am very interested to know why um, you founded the Center for the Last Good Idea, and I hope they are kind of linked, those two. <laughs> I can link those two. Um, just as I'm listening to Miriam and Klankler, you know, I think that the, the Center for the Last Good Idea is, is about being artist-centered, where the individual artist and their relationship to their their form and, and their discipline, but also to their community, as in other artists that they have an opportunity to work with, is our core focus. It's our core interest. And so very often there are platforms, systems, industries around the art that determine and label what is good, what is high art, what is schluck, um, But the artist itself uh, is in an individual process. And in many cases, uh, the artist has to engage pop culture in order to survive. It's also where they hone their skills and, and where they are able to, to really find their, 
find their expression. But what happens is that the institutions and platforms that hold us, they either wholly accept that and kind of chain you to this form which has a particular logic of profit. And in, in this instance, it becomes very difficult for an artist to liberate themselves from that. It becomes impossible to take risks and to, and to even play. And then there are other institutions of academia and high esteem who wholly reject what the artist is doing for survival. So there are so many platforms that hold the art, but very few who consider the complexity and vulnerability of what it is to be making, uh, inventing, or performing. And so the center wanted to be a space that said, all right, our community is artists. We give their impulses the benefit of the doubt. You are welcome to come in here as a, you know, we've worked with performers who, who learned their trade, who learned their form as tourist dancers on the streets. Molisile Bangwana, one of the most exceptional South African dancers, contemporary conceptual dancers, from the age of seven until the age of 27, was a, a little Zulu tourist dancer for in, in Eastern Cape. No, also. Uh, but he got his tips from tourists and he was performing for the white expectation. You don't get much more popular than that. And yet he built a, a muscle memory and a relationship with his body as a dancer, which is now transcending itself into um, a form that is new and is avant-garde or, or whatever you want to call it. So I think that the, you know, there's, there's often these two sort of extremes. There's, there's the, the museum, the institution that is rejecting anything that is um, popular or in inclusive or, and artists who have to play within these realms are therefore not deemed as worthy and then there's the other extreme where the artist gets kind of through capitalism tied to uh, this particular dynamic um, and they're not enough spaces and so the center wanted to be that space of saying any kind of artist in any position within their trajectory is welcome to be here. We're, we're wanting to be interdisciplinary, collective, collaborative and the objective is to surprise ourselves. What we're learning is that giving the artist the benefit of the doubt, most artists don't want to repeat themselves. They want to drive um, and, and push their form. It's the spaces that hold them that don't comprehend that journey. You are a space uh, and also an idea. Can you talk a little bit about the philosophy of the Center for the Less Good Idea, which I found very interesting uh, also in relation to experimentation and to the possibility to even experiment? Sure. Um, you know, I think when William Kentridge and I began this conversation, we said, right, let's, what is it to build a space in downtown Johannesburg, one that, that, begins to identify and fill the gaps that we were experiencing ourselves as practicing artists. We knew that 
those gaps included spaces for process, spaces for interdisciplinary, uh, collaborative, collective making, very much also inspired by what has been William's great privilege in his life. You know, he has many privileges, but the fact that he has been able to work so collaboratively and collectively has, I think, created a body of work now that is post-genre, it's post-definition. sort of And so when we were discussing what the space would do and how, how we would do it, um, we, were, we were looking for a physical space uh, in, in downtown Johannesburg and walking through these kinds of construction sites and trying to understand what this, this would be. And the more we spoke, we realized this wasn't about a kind of brick and mortar. It wasn't about finding this ideal space that would become this um, institution to, to him or to, to any of us. Um, it was, it was uh, when he shared with me the Setswana proverb, and he'd been reading, there's this beautiful little blue book written in the late 1800s by uh, Sol Pleike, Solomon Pleike, who was a Tswana man, who um, was a lawyer, a historian, a translator, absolutely brilliant individual who I think has largely been sort of muted or ignored, in, certainly in, in South African history. Um, but he, he fought some of the court cases, first court cases on behalf of, of um, black laborers. And Sol Pleike translated 700-odd um, Setswana proverbs. Uh, Setswana is a beautiful kind of very proverbial metaphoric language. And when you translate them into the kind of clumsy English, there's just these lovely phrases. And one of them was, if the good doctor can't cure you, find the less good doctor. So, I mean, it's amusing and it's clumsy, but it's so accurate in describing the artistic process in that anybody who is in that process knows that there are these grand ideas, there are these big things that wake you up at 3 a.m. that drive you into a state of making. There are these little pearls in the mind's eye, and then you try to manifest them outside of your body and your mind. And sometimes it's in relationship to a canvas and, and a paintbrush. Sometimes it's in relationship to your instrument and, and you're wanting to score it. Or it's in relation to other bodies in the room. Um, but inevitably, what that, that kind of complete, perfect pearl, um, when you push it out into the world, things start to fall apart. Uh, there are things you didn't expect. It collapses. Cracks appear. And if we are allowed to be in the stickiness of that problem, then something happens that we didn't know to identify in our mind's eye, but that we recognize the moment we see it. It's that thing that surprises us. And it's so the pursuit of the less good idea, of saying... We're grateful for the good ideas, for the, for the grand ideas. They move us. But actually, when they meet the world, we need to have um, that space to, to play and to recognize what we didn't know we always knew. That's very true also for science. So the less good talk given on a huge conference is always more fruitful than the perfect talk, always. And it's also true for teaching. If the teacher is a little less prepared, the session is much better. If he is prepared in perfection, he will kill his students. And if not, 
everybody else is invited to contribute and to share. And that's the moment why the less good idea is always the better one. Thank you. I'm very happy that we found that kind of kindred spiritness of science and, and art. And since we're now kind of um, also in the university space, but also in a venue that you found with William together, I wanted to ask how important is the space to to develop these ideas and I will just open up to, to everybody this question. How important is actually the, the place you are in, the space you're in to um, have the freedom to experiment? It is very important. Bronin have said that for many reasons, the institutions and the government, there is an expectation. If I am an artist when applying for a funding in South Africa, art becomes a secondary thing. An art project should be addressing a social responsibility. So is it a rural development project using music or dance or painting? Is it a election education project? Is it an AIDS education project through music? Is it a teenage pregnancy? Pro Basically, the government wants you to do their job using your art. So like, oh, you, you draw. So can you draw something that will make people to stop littering? Can you sing something that will make people to stop using drugs? So you're not going to get the money unless you are solving a, a, a social problem. That's one. And two, you go to a production house. And a production house, they say, it's not going to sell because you are not a name. It's not going to sell. We're not going to invite it in our theater because you, your name is not, going, is not popular enough to invite, attract the audience. So you need to fire someone in your cast and, and have this face that will attract the audience. Can he sing? Can he dance? Can he dance? That's, that's beside the point. You go to an audition, they ask you for your Twitter handle and your Instagram and before they even watch your audition tape, they have to see how many followers you have. You compose music inspired by the gunshots and you're using beatbox and voices like they say what is this what? so so everything there's it is scrutinized to fit into the frame of how people think and you actually have to fit to the the frame of limitation and i want to call it the frame of limitation but the what the center for the less good idea is providing is for an artist to create without the fear of not selling, of not solving a social problem, and of not, uh, without the fear of, of failing and collapsing and say, I tried it and it didn't work and it looked like that. See how it's not working. Yeah, I think that uh, one of the things that's always interesting to me is, is the physical space versus the immaterial um, idea. And, um, you know, the physical space in downtown Johannesburg is one that is layered and potent. Um, it, it does respond to its community. It has to. 
For three years of now, I've been living outside of Johannesburg, well, between Johannesburg and Vienna, and I've spent a lot more time in Europe than I ever have before. And um, I'm convinced that the particular personality or quality of this space, this center, couldn't have kind of come about anywhere else but Johannesburg. I often say Johannesburg is simultaneously exquisitely beautiful and devastatingly ugly. It's an incredibly complex city. It is the most, one of the most violent cities outside of a war zone in the world, and yet the people are warm, connected, and communicative at all times. So it is this constant contradiction, and it is also a constant crisis. And so the qualities that the center has come out of, come in response to that. As a physical space, I think I really, one of the things that I, I recognized is that we're in what used to be factories, light industrial factories. They've been very lightly renovated to now hold the various activities that we do. And we're like, we're a dreadful black box theater. We're a hideous white cube gallery. But, being in that in-between state means that when you ask artists from these different disciplines to come not with their National Arts Council proposal that has been honed into a PDF, but to just come with themselves and into a kind of a state of call and response, that they have to sort of put down some of their tropes, some of their, their expectations and their habits um, this is what a white, when you're in a white cube gallery, it's very difficult to deny the cube. When you're in a black box theater, it's the same story. Exactly. So, so it, these spaces kind of open up. And I honestly believe they kind of become imbued with a memory and a, and a particular culture. And these, at this stage uh, of the center's life, seven years in, I would say you could describe that culture as one of empathy, one of listening one that celebrates the unknown, the unknowable, that is about um, safe spaces for stupidity. Uh, these, these are the, the kind of qualities, and so they inform the immaterial and the way that we move forward. And ha just responding to what Nklankla said, that by not putting the weight of the world's social problems onto the head of the artist, and saying they are there, they're our community and our focus, and we believe that a healthy artist makes for a better society. Art is good for society in whichever form it comes. Um, that without that pressure, the center as an institution has had the opportunity to work with the most incredibly diverse non-art communities, because ultimately artists are connected to their communities two groups of people who are in complex and often very difficult situations. The artist, through their practice and their research, is it's burning in their bellies. They're there. So as an institution, if you hold them, you ultimately do hold a community. But it's, a, it's that kind of logic. It's the cart before the horse where, where there's this idea that art has to display its social worth before it can make itself. And I want to respond to what Bronwyn says about the location, the space. And it couldn't, the center couldn't have been in a better space in the world than Johannesburg. That Johannesburg is exquisitely beautiful and 
devastatingly ugly. Is that what you said? At the same time. And I want to talk about that beauty and ugliness at the same time. The art that comes, that is mainly South African and particularly Johannesburg. Most of the art, especially in music and dance, there is a a dance form that, that started in the city of Johannesburg. It's called Panzula. In response to its piti piti, the, the rush, the, the, the overcrowdedness, the crime, the running and the saving yourself and survival, getting into that train, as it's about to leave, you jump on it while it's in motion. And you, because you can't afford to be late and you can't afford to wait for the next one. You live in a communication that's, in, in a community that is overcrowded. You need to be on that train. And also you need to stand by the edge of the door because if you go inside, you might not be able to come out in time and you will pass your station. So you will have to be able to practice what is called as a child is parapara. Isparapara is a, a skill to, to get into the train while it's on motion and, get, and to get off while it's on motion. And it, if it requires you to run as it runs and it requires you to hold a certain way and it requires you to use your feet a certain way to get on. You're inside. You're out. And how do you get out of a moving train and so that the counter momentum doesn't distort you and break your spine. And how then your body connects with that practice. And at that time, you need to get to work and you need to get home. And over and above, you don't even have money to buy the train ticket. You have to run away from the ticket examiner and ticket in the police. And you have to be able to jump the fence before you go to the, you know. And there's, there's a police chasing you. So they, and when you look at Panzula dance, it's when the body, it's so well cooked to survive and navigate that. And when the train is not around and the music is playing, you start moving in that way, and that develops into a music, a popular culture of music, a genre, and, and a language of the body. The same thing happens in the mind, how you discovered Gambud dance, how you discover Stratamiya music, and I'm, I, I want to make an example, that's why I said maybe I'll talk about one. So that's the exquisite of the city of Johannesburg. Strange enough, the name of our former president, his name is which means the one who strikes as he smiles. And that's what Johannesburg is. What you were saying about the center of the last good idea is that we are in, in desperate need of such a center and the artists are in desperate need. How do you reject people who come to you? When we were trying to understand how we build an institution that doesn't uh, rely on existing forms of, of inviting artists or having a board who would choose the most appropriate uh, proposals, those sorts of things. We, we decided to embrace nepotism in a way. 
which was that we weren't interested in being the artistic directors of this space, of having the consistent artistic voice. We were, in fact, my role, uh, we coined as the animateur. This person responsible for the energy, the momentum, the animating of a space, and also on pulling of threads of networks of people who exist out there, so who are making. So uh, one of my core functions um, has been to see as much work, that which is underground in clubs, in, in spaces that are, are um, peripheral, as well as what's happening in the, in the kind of center, and to try to draw different practitioners towards one another. And one of the strategies we use is that we create uh, a season, which takes about a year. At the beginning of that season, we invite a few artists who we note have a very strong practice, a good trajectory, are, are strong in their field, but who also display an interest in working outside of their discipline and in a collective way. So we invite them into the space and into a conversation, and we begin rather with a kind of thematic or curatorial statement. We're not interested in all of that. We begin with a provocation. And I'll, I can give some examples of the provocation. But what we say to these people, you know, you can have a theater maker, a poet and writer, and a composer. They've not worked together before. They sometimes know of each other, sometimes they don't. And we ask them a few questions. What is that project you've been wanting to do and haven't been able to do? Who are those people you've been wanting to work with and haven't been able to work with? And so the conversation opens up there, and people are identified by the curators. The curator changes. The curators change every year, and they bring in their people, right? That's why I say nepotism. So these are people that I don't know, but they're coming through. Then we set the stage of these intensive workshops where what started as a conversation with three curators and William and myself and now Pala Okiditsa Pala, who is on the ground at the Animateur in Johannesburg, becomes a first workshop of 60 people. Everybody in that room is given an equal status to be choosing a collaboration, choosing a kind of a, a direction, identifying people they want to work with in the room who are not, who they weren't invited through. Um, and in the first and the second very intensive workshops, that's the premise. And then the making is already beginning. What the center always has is a very strong um, absorption team, I call them, or mirrors. We have a writer. We have a, a filmmaker editor. We have a sound recorder. We have a photographer. These people are documenting process. They're trying to reveal the fluid. And in a nearly sort of live way, it gets shown back to us. It's, it's, it's become a really fabulous tool where you can say, you can turn around to your, your film team and say, at quarter past three, there was something magical that happened on the stage. Can we see it before the end of the day? And it's re-projected up for us, right? So that becomes a collective identification of what is working and what is not. And I would say more often than not, there's a consensus in the room of these are the projects. By the end of that second intensive workshop after a kind of month, there's a sort of an understanding of, yes, we're going to pursue that 
and we're going to let that go. But then we've also had devices where we've had a room of failures. That room was more interesting than the, than the successful room because everybody started to love the failures and, and want to work the failures, right? We've had the surplus circus. So we're identifying there's something interesting, but we don't have capacity to resolve it, to extend it. So what is it to just mash it together so that we hold it for what it was in that moment and then, and then we keep going and we know that at some point, whether it is within the center or in the individual artists, that it will find its form. We're not interested in proposals. We're less interested in reports. We're interested in the stuff that happens in the middle and we have a very sort of democratic way of paying people. Everybody who works at the center is paid for every moment that they're there in their process, whether they produce a product or not. Everybody gets the same fee, and it is their choice to respond to what that, how that fee meets their needs and their expectations. And I would say, based on that system, we are hardly ever disappointed because... Ultimately, everything that is made at the center belongs to the artist. It is their intellectual property. The center does not own it. This is a unique and very privileged position that we're in because our funder is William Kentridge. So he's a man who doesn't require uh, this to make money. He's investing in it. And he sees it as feeding him because it's a constant source of inspiration to his practice too. Uh, you now mentioned the surplus circus, and I'm very interested to talk a little bit more about the surplus circus and about the way you actually work in Klankla because what I witnessed in the um, rehearsals uh, of the surplus circus was a quite, um, which to me coming from a KOB, from an opera context, very experimental, improvisational uh, way of working which our musicians have experienced in other contexts, but do not at the opera. So we work with notation, with, with uh, works that are already written. So um, I would love to um, ask you in Klankla, how did you uh, start this process with, with our musicians and with our singer, and how did you um, yeah, start into the surplus circus? And It is the curse and the blessing of, of not knowing. It's the limitation that provides uh, gold to most of my processes. Because I don't know the big words. I don't know what's experiment and I don't know what is. I can't read music. I can't play a single instrument. And yet I compose things that play at the Rome opera, when people ask me, how do you do it? And I say, I don't know how I do it. I have no idea. Um, I just, you just open your mouth, and I, I'll tell you when it's wrong. <laughs> just open your mouth and sing, and I'll tell you when it's wrong. And a group of you know, orchestra players come in with their instruments, and then, so where's our score? I'm like, in your dreams. <laughs> It's not here. I don't have it. I don't know how to read it. I don't know how to write it. Just play your violin now. Take out your violin and play. What must I play? I don't know. 
and you play it and then say, okay, respond to what you're hearing and then respond. And then like, what are you, what, what are you going to do with this sound with your double bass? Oh, okay, I can do this because it's in the key of D. So if I can take a major sharp, I don't know what you're talking about, just play. And I say, okay, that is wrong. I don't want that. <laughs> and I'm being cynical about it. But obviously, I plan. I have a structure. But it's a structure that is not informed by what's in the books. It's a simple thing as what is your name and what is your instrument and how do you use it and what does it mean to you. After that introduction, everybody have introduced their name and their instrument and how they use it. And then we start responding to their introductions. And those responses to say, okay, I liked the way you played this and it makes me want to sing this way. And then we take that thing and then we combine with this and then we start building, building and building because I am very much used to building without bricks, without cement, without but building with whatever you have. Maybe I'll ask the last question and then open up for everybody so you have time. I want to ask about the future of musical theater. This is maybe a very big question, but I want to ask uh, all three of you if you see that um, experimentation and maybe being in touch with your popular, with your whatever you have uh, experienced in your context is one step into a future for musical theater and especially, well, for opera. So I don't know if uh, you might want to respond to that. I have limitation in the understanding of the past of the opera and I have limitation in the understanding of the present of the opera and I will definitely have a limitation in, ask, in answering about the future of opera but uh, I, my understanding of music is uh, it's maybe something I can talk about that the music as a an access to a language. Uh, my collaborator in the African Exodus, he, fo he follows through something very, very interesting that when he, in every part of the world that you go to, there is a language which they speak. And that language has a tone, that language has a rhythm, that uh, language has a melody. So when somebody says you speak English with an accent, it means I'm speaking in English with a tone and a melody and the rhythm of Zulu. And that tone, that melody, that rhythm, it also informs how they would sing and how they would make music. And also now opera, it is informed by those the, those languages and those forms. And, and it exists as it exists And then it found an opportunity to be institutionalized. And the thing is, the more we institutionalize things, that's how we kill them, because we make them rigid. But you're saying that opera is also an archive of voices, right? It's an archival form of conserving voices that... I think you could say that. That, yeah. might, that uh, might be gone, because the languages are changing, or the, yes. the people are changing, or even languages become extinguished. So one of the futures, I think, would be 
to have archives that are not based on notations as we had before because we have ways of recording it. Um, people in the in the 16th century couldn't couldn't record it, couldn't preserve it for the future. We can, which makes it less dependent on the musical core, which is nice, more accessible. I would say that what has always been the quality of opera in opposition to theater or musical, that it is so artificial. So it's, it's artificiality that is so, so thrilling. It is thrilling that somebody who's dying is singing. You know, that's, that's, the, that's the unique selling point. And the future should be aware of that if it wants to survive. Yeah. And, and, and talking about language as well, because language evolves, right? And then language inspired the music. And if the music does not, then, then music wants to be frozen in time. It's an archive. It's a documentation. Okay, no, once upon a time, people spoke like this. And it's, it's documented in the, in the music. For an example, in, in the South African context, how the history is preserved, is preserved in the praise name. When I say, I am Untlanta Matanguti, Magasum Lembele, Lewa Lembele, Langen, the Timla Lokomo Mukupa, Manganom Putu, Aputu, Lumatanyana, Ipagaya, Quidin Rabangis Nyava, Isnyava, Bibles about Quenzinja, and Wakudin Rabangis Nyava. So it sounds like a rap or a poem or thing, but it, 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 those are the names of my grand great-grandfathers, and some are whom I know, some whom I don't know, and all, in fact, it's mostly whom I don't know. And But with all their adventures, he climbed the mountain in reverse, and I don't know what was going on. And every family have got a, a you know, Istarazel. And what was happening in African Exodus? Spoo, in, 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 with the Gregorian chant that we sing in the show, we found it very strange that we're telling an African Exodus story and we end on a Gregorian chant. So something's wrong with this. And in trying to remedy that, he, we then had to think about when the, at the time of the Gregorian chants, what was happening in, in, in the Nguni land in the southern Africa, what were the sounds of them. And then we, you know, our singer sang the Gregorian chant that is reimagined and with the lead voice of the ancient song of the similar time and during our dress rehearsal Tulan is one who's also a fantastic singer and he started taking over, he was feeling the song and he started going into a lead voice of that song and Sbu is leading and Sbu said to him, don't sing that song it's for my family and it was a serious thing for him, that song it's only sang by the Shozi family members and you can't lead it. So like the music and the language is, is actually a very, very serious archive. And it's an archive that is very, very important and document. Thank you very much. Thank you for being here. Thank you to my wonderful panel, to Miriam Schaub and Klanka Machlangu and Bronwyn Lace. And yeah, have a great afternoon. Thank you.